0: section eleven of the lives of the queens of england volume nine by agnes and elizabeth Strickland. this librivox recording is in the public domain mary beatrice of modena chapter four part one mary beatrice was an attendant on the deathbed of her royal brother-in-law charles the second and the only person in that room to whom queen catherine ventured to speak a word in confidence on his spiritual affairs no one lamented more sincerely for the fatal termination of the illness of that monarch although it was an event that elevated her consort and herself to a throne the queen that is now writes an eye-witness of the last moments of charles the second was a most passionate mourner and so tender-hearted as to think a crown dearly bought with the loss of such a brother Mary Beatrice herself, when alluding to her feelings on this occasion, long years afterwards, said, I confess that I took no pleasure in the envied name of a queen. I was so greatly afflicted for the death of King Charles, that I dared not give free vent to my grief, lest I should be suspected of hypocrisy or grimace. I had loved him very dearly and with reason, for he was very amiable and had shown me much kindness the same moment that certified the fact that charles the second had ceased to breathe saw every knee bend in homage to the calumniated duke of york while every voice united in crying god save king james the second the crown had taken away all defects and he was instantaneously beset on every side with compliments and congratulations exhausted with grief and watching beholding in the lifeless form before him a solemn lesson on the frailty of earthly grandeur and sickening perhaps at the shameless adulation of the time-serving courtiers the new sovereign withdrew to his closet to commune with his own heart in silence after a brief pause james met his council and was recognized as the lawful monarch of the realm without a dissentient voice he expressed his passionate sorrow for his brother's death and signified his intention of governing by the established laws and supporting the church of england concluding his address with those words i have often ventured my life in defense of this nation and will go as far as any man in preserving its just privileges this declaration was received with unanimous applause he was immediately proclaimed at the gates of whitehall and afterwards in the city amidst the acclamations of the populace evelyn who assisted at this ceremony returned with the state officers and the heralds to whitehall and was introduced into the presence of the new king and queen tells us that the king tired out as he was with grief and fatigue had been compelled meantime to take a little repose on his bed but was now risen and in his undress The queen was still in bed, but the deputation being introduced into her apartment, queens had neither rest nor privacy allowed them in those days of royal slavery. She put forth her hand, seeming to be much afflicted, as I believe she was, pursues Evelyn, having deported herself so decently upon all occasions since she came into England, which made her universally beloved. The following sunday their majesties went publicly to mass in the queen's chapel in st james's palace leaving the chapel royal at whitehall for the use of the princess anne of denmark and the protestant portion of their household that sunday almost every pulpit in the metropolis echoed with the praises of the new sovereign and with prayers that he and his consort might enjoy a long and happy reign the first few days after their accession to the throne the new king and queen were chiefly occupied in receiving the compliments and condolences of the ambassadors of all the sovereigns in europe mary beatrice received and entertained her court seated under a morning canopy of state with a black foot cloth she performed her part with the grace and dignity that were natural to her but she took no pleasure in her new honours she was a childless mother and though she was only seven and twenty her enemies began to insinuate the improbability of her bringing heirs to the throne james had four illegitimate children by arabella churchill and two by his present mistress katharine sedley his majesty however being bent on effecting a moral reform in his court persuaded mrs sedley to absent herself to the great satisfaction of those who had feared that she would act the same part in the reign of james as the duchess of cleveland had done in that of charles James was a person of better intentions than his brother. He expressed publicly his abhorrence of drinking and swearing. On Sunday last, writes a contemporary, the king going to mass told his attendants he had been informed that since his declaration against the disorder of the household, some had the impudence to appear drunk in the queen's presence. Tis thought he reflected on the Duke of A, but he advised them at their peril to observe his orders which he would see obeyed. James also discouraged the practice of dueling, which was one of the prevailing sins of the age, and had caused several frightful tragedies in his brother's court. Among other things, he said, I know a man who has fought nine duels, and yet is a very coward, having manifestly shown himself so during an engagement at sea. The king attended closely to business and a great change for the better appeared in the manners of the courtiers, profane and licentious speeches were no longer tolerated. The first use Mary Beatrice made of her new power and dignity as Queen of England was an attempt to compel her brother, the Duke of Modena, who had perversely remained a bachelor till he was five and twenty, to enter the Holy Pale of Wedlock with a consort of her providing the young lady whom she was desirous of making duchess of modena was mademoiselle de bouillon one of the greatest heiresses in france nearly related to themselves also for her mother was one of the fair mancini sisters perhaps the duke of modena disliked the connection or preferred choosing a wife for himself for he coldly declined the alliance mary beatrice who appears to have taken an infinity of pains in gaining the consent of the lady and of the king of france under the idea that she was rendering her brother a great service, was exceedingly offended at this contumacity which she attributed to the evil counsels of his prime minister and favorite, Prince Caesar, a kinsman of the family. The records in the Archives des Affaires étrangers de France, connected with this business, prove that she behaved with petulance towards her brother and his minister. In her letter of the 26th of February, there are marks of great anger on the part of the Queen of England against Prince Caesar, observes our authority. And she seems disposed to carry matters with a high hand, as she says he is the cause of preventing the marriage she has proposed, for which marriage she testifies the most ardent wish. In another letter, written by her on the 5th of March, she manifests the same disposition, the king her husband has told the Abbe Rosini that of all the matches that had been proposed for the duke that with mademoiselle de Bouillon was the most advantageous for him and that he thought he ought not to hesitate any longer about accepting it since the king of france had expressed a wish for it and it was the only means by which he could reinstate himself in the good graces of that prince and that for the future he must not reckon on the good offices either of the queen or himself unless he resolved to follow their advice mary beatrice went so far as to express her opinion that prince cesar had suppressed her former letters to the duke her brother saying that that she had some thoughts of sending the abbe rizzini to modena that he might communicate all she felt on the subject and it was her wish that the abbe should pass through paris that he might see mademoiselle de Bouillon in order to give the duke a description of her shape and person and to afford that lady any information she might desire this it appears she did and at the same time wrote a passionate letter to her brother complaining of his conduct which she said she entirely attributed to the evil influence of prince caesar and that if he did not alter his determination and consent to this advantageous match which she had proposed for him she should be compelled to add her resentment to that of the king of france she even threatened the minister with her vengeance. In a letter to the king of France, she positively declared that she never would desist from this design till she had brought it to pass, the king of England and she having set their hearts upon it, and that it could not fail of being accomplished, provided the king of France continued in the same mind. Nevertheless, added she, i see plainly that prince caesar will not allow the duke of modena to marry that he may retain his influence over him and continue to govern him as he has hitherto done she begged that louis would communicate with her privately on this matter as she did not wish to discuss it with his ambassador barillon the duke of modena wrote to his sister that he had some thoughts of coming to england to explain to her in person the reasons that prevented him from accepting her proposition when she had read this letter she exclaimed with great vehemence unless he has vowed himself a monk i see no good reason why he should not marry and if he does marry why should he not accept the proposition that i have made to him on the twelfth of march mary beatrice wrote to the king of france if the last letters I have written to my brother, together with the change in my condition, do not incline him to allow me to conclude the marriage I have proposed for him, we must suppose there is nothing more to be done, unless the resolutions that the king may take against Prince Caesar, may lead him to accommodate the matter by inducing the Duke of Modena to bestow his hand in this marriage. In a letter of the 15th, Her Majesty wrote, that she thought of requesting the king her husband to write a letter to the duke of modena representing to him how wrong he was to demure giving his hand where she had advised as the most advantageous marriage he could make since it would wholly reinstate him in the good graces of the king of france with whom he was at variance therefore he ought to consider it as the greatest good she could procure for him she added that she considered prince Caesar had been the cause of all the false steps the duke her brother had taken and that if she could only get the duke to come to england she had every hope that she should be able to induce him to enter into this alliance only she much doubted that prince Caesar would ever permit him to come for fear such a journey should be prejudicial to his design of continuing to govern the duke and country of modena as tyrannically as he had hitherto done so that she foresees he will prevent it, and she is quite sure that he has suppressed most of the letters that she has written to her brother. The dangerous position of the duke of Modena's affairs, in consequence of his rash quarrel with Louis the Fourteenth, and the pains Mary Beatrice had taken to effect a reconciliation, by means of the proposed marriage between him and Mademoiselle de Bouillon, cannot excuse the imperious manner in which she attempted to overrule his reluctance, Little had she learned of the combative nature of mankind during her twelve years of matrimony. It seems that James allowed her to say what she pleased, in any matter of dispute, but acted according to his own pleasure. In many respects, he acted much wiser and better if he had followed her advice. She was greatly opposed to his allowing Father Petre any share in his counsels. She disliked the man and perceived that he would lead his majesty into unpopular courses of a far more courteous character than her correspondence with the duke of modena her brother was the letter which mary beatrice wrote to the prince of orange in reply to the congratulations he had addressed to her by his ambassador whitehall march sixteenth sixteen eighty five the lines you sent me by mr overkay or overkirk and the compliments be made me from you were so obliging that i know not how to thank you half enough for it But I hope you believe that all the marks you give me of your friendship are very agreeable to me, and so must desire the continuance of it, which I am sure I shall always deserve from you, for nothing can ever alter me from being, with all sincerity and without compliments, yours truly, M.R. Pray follow my example and write to me without any ceremony, for it is not to be minded between such friends as we are. Though all things wore a smiling aspect at the beginning of her consort's reign, the fickle multitude evincing, the enthusiastic loyalty which is generally manifested towards a new sovereign, Mary Beatrice was neither well in body nor tranquil in mind. The health of the Queen of England, writes Barillon to Louis the Fourteenth, is not in a good state. Those who are about her person believe she will not live long her malady is a species of inflammation in the chest with violent attacks of colic which frequently return she believes herself in danger in another letter his excellency speaks of her majesty having become very thin and pale up to that period mary beatrice had never used art to heighten her complexion she had a great objection to rouge not only as a matter of taste but from a religious scruple it was, however, the fashion for the ladies of her court to paint, and the king told her he wished her to do the same, more out of complaisance, probably, to the opinion of others, than because he imagined that artificial opaque tints of red could harmonize better with the classic dignity of her features than her own marble-like complexion. The queen, willing to please her lord at any rate, at length complied with the fashion by putting on the rouge. Father Seraphin a capuchin friar of great sanctity seemed surprised when he saw her thus and in reply to some remark about the paleness that seemed to render it necessary bluntly exclaimed madam i would rather see your majesty yellow or even green than rouged this being in the presence of the king the queen was infinitely amused at the uncourtier-like sincerity of the old ecclesiastic and could never think of his rejoinder without laughing The cause that robbed the cheek of the young and beautiful consort of James II of Bloom, preyed on her spirits, and occasionally ruffled the equanimity of her temper, was her inability to induce him to dismiss his bold, audacious paramour, Catherine Sedley, from her household. This woman, after James's accession to the throne, aspired to become a recognized state mistress, and to enjoy the same power that she had seen, the Duchess of Portsmouth, exercise in the late reign. Unfortunately, those who call themselves James's best friends, the Earl of Rochester for instance, and other gentlemen who dreaded the effects of his blind zeal for Romanism, which they attributed to the influence of his Catholic consort, thought it would be as well if that influence were counterbalanced by the fascinations of her rival. Catherine Sedley, piqued herself, on being a good protestant which goodness consisted not of course in the purity and holiness of life enjoined by the reformed religion but in hostility to that of rome and she was accustomed to amuse james with the most cutting raillery on the ceremonies and dogmas of his faith it was devoutly hoped by rochester clarendon and others that her powers of ridicule would in time destroy his majesty's unpopular veneration for the church of rome and they very improperly encouraged him in his unprincipled violation of his conjugal duties the queen when she learned that her audacious rival was supported by the king's brother-in-law treated them and their ladies with the disdain which such conduct was calculated to excite in her bosom this was in turn resented and revenged in various ways and the result was that sunderland who was politically opposed to the earl of rochester and affected to pay great court to the queen worked his way into a preponderance of power in the cabinet not through her favour for she always distrusted him but in consequence of her hostility to the allies of Catherine sedley sad indeed it is when the virtuous affections of a pure and sensitive heart are rendered instrumental in the selfish interests of cold calculating politicians Yet the jealousy of Mary Beatrice was not the coarse feeling that belongs to vulgar-minded women. Long after the death of her lord, when she alluded to her affection for him, she once averted to her wrongs in these words. I will not say that he had no other attachment or passion. The king was ready to sacrifice his crown to his faith but had no power to banish a mistress. I said to him once, sir is it possible that you would for the sake of one passion lose the merit of all your sacrifices on another occasion her majesty confessed that she had suffered herself to be so far transported by her indignant feelings as to say to the king give her my dower make her queen of england but let me never see her more mary beatrice considered however that she had been guilty of a great fault in speaking thus to her lord the remonstrances of the priests and the catholic lords who made common cause with her majesty induced james to expunge mrs sedley's name from the list of the ladies of his injured consort's household and he made a strong effort to break the distasteful tie by enjoining her departure from the court such intimacies are much easier contracted than broken as all princes find to their cost catharine left town for a little while but retained her apartments at whitehall the result will be shown anon it can scarcely be imagined that james really preferred a coarse-minded unchaste ugly woman to his virtuous loving and beautiful wife the empire of katharine sedley was that of habit maintained by violence in effrontery she was the mother at that time of a grown-up daughter whom he had married to the earl of annesley there are many proofs notwithstanding his infidelities that James regarded his consort with feelings of respect, amounting to veneration. His admiration for her personal charms is testified by the device he chose for the reverse of her coronation medal, in which her graceful figure, clothed in flowing draperies, is seated on a rock in the attitude of a Britannia, with an inscription from Aeneas's address to Venus. O Dea curte, The proclamations were issued for the coronation of the king and queen to take place April 23rd, being St. George's Day. Circulars were on this occasion issued to the peeresses to attend in scarlet robes and coronets on the queen at that ceremonial. One of the Scotch judges, Sir John Lauder of Fountain Hall, makes a singular observation in his diary on the intimation that Mary Beatrice was to be crowned what the coronation of the queen imports is doubted if it will make her regent after his death a massy crown of gold is making for her our commons continues he took up a jealousy that the scotch crown was to be sent down to windsor that the king might be crowned with it no queen-consort had been crowned in england with the single exception of anne of denmark since anne boleyn and great interest was excited at the expectation of mary of modena taking her proper place in this imposing spectacle which her great beauty and majestic figure were eminently calculated to adorn so many ancient claims were revived for the performance of various services which in the olden times were required of the manorial nobility of england by the sovereign but which had in later years fallen into disuse That a court was empowered to sit at Westminster for the purpose of deciding them previous to the coronation. This court was opened on the 30th of March. Many of these claims being founded on oral tradition were judged obsolete. The lord of the manor of Bardolf in Addington, Surrey, claimed to find a man to make a dish of grout for their majesty's table, and therefore prayed that the king's master cook might perform that service which was granted. The lord of the manor of Finegrith, Essex, claimed to be the chamberlain to the queen for that day, and to have the queen's bed and furniture, basins, etc., belonging to the office, and to have a clerk in the exchequer, to demand and receive the queen's gold. This claim was disallowed, because not made out as regarded the movables. As for the ancient immunity of the queen gold, or aurum reginae, it was never either claimed or received by Mary Beatrice. King James, with his usual regard to economy, curtailed some of the expensive details connected with his inauguration, especially the cavalcade from the tower, by which he effected a retrenchment of upwards of 60,000 pounds. In consequence of the plunder of the crown jewels by the roundheads during the Civil War, every article of the Queen's regalia had to be supplied out of the fund voted for the coronation in this reign no parsimony however was shown by james in regard to the circlet crowns and other regal ornaments which were made expressly for the use of his consort for they appear to have been of unparalleled magnificence the price of the diamonds pearls and other gems with which her imperial diadem was set amounted to one hundred thousand six hundred and fifty eight pounds sterling according to evelyn who saw the bills attested by the goldsmith and jeweler who set them when completed however it was valued at one hundred and eleven thousand nine hundred pounds the coronation was in the easter week king james on the Monday thursday previous performed in person the ancient ceremonial observance of the sovereigns of england by washing the feet of fifty-two poor men according to the number of his own years and touched several for the king's evil the night before the coronation the queen slept at st james's palace her former abode when duchess of york and always preferred by her to the royal palace at whitehall the next morning having performed her devotions there she was attired by her ladies of the bedchamber assisted by her women in her royal robes of purple velvet furred with ermine and looped with ropes and tassels of pearls her kirtle being of rich white and silver brocade ornamented with pearls and precious stones with a stomacher very elaborately set with jewels on her head was a cap of purple velvet turned up with ermine powdered with gems and a circlet of gold very richly adorned with large diamonds curiously set a row of pearls round the upper edge she then went privately in her chair to whitehall and thence through privy gardens into channel row and across new palace yard to westminster hall where the court of wards had been fitted up for her majesty to repose herself in with her ladies while the ceremonial of the procession was set in order in the hall at the same time the king entered westminster hall her majesty attended by her lord chamberlain and her other officers and ladies came out of the court of wards by a private door at the south-west corner of the hall and went to her chair of state under her canopy at the upper end of the hall and stood before it until the king was seated the seats of the royal pair were under separate canopies that of the queen being somewhat lower and smaller than that of the king but both exceedingly rich after the regalia had been delivered to the king and placed with ceremonies too elaborate to recapitulate here on the table at which their majesties were to dine that day the said table being covered with a large fine carpet of turkey or persian work the queen's crown sceptre and the ivory rod with the dove were in like manner delivered and placed on the table before her majesty at the king's left hand and were distributed by the lord great chamberlain to the noblemen appointed to carry them the queen's procession headed by her vice-chamberlain mr robert strickland preceded that of the king in the following manner the earl of dorset carrying the ivory rod the earl of rutland the sceptre and the duke of beaufort the crown after them followed the queen herself supported by the bishops of london and winchester under a rich canopy supported by sixteen barons of the cinque ports her train was borne by the young duchess of norfolk assisted by four daughters of earls namely lady jane noel daughter of the earl of gainsborough lady anne herbert daughter of the earl of pembroke lady anne spencer daughter of the earl of sunderland and Lady Essex Roberts. The Countess of Peterborough, the groom of the Stole, as she was called, with two ladies of the bedchamber, Lady Sophia Bulkeley and Frances, Countess of Bantry, and Mrs. E. Bromley and Mrs. Margaret Dawson, Her Majesty's bedchamber women, were in close attendance on her person. The King's procession, in which the venerable Sir William Dugdale walked in his 82nd year as Garter King of Arms, followed in solemn state, their majesties walked in this order from westminster hall through new palace yard into king street and so through the great sanctuary to the west door of the abbey the passage being railed in on both sides from the north door of the hall to the entrance into the choir guarded by his majesty's guards horse and foot two breaths of blue cloth were spread for their majesties to walk on all the way from the stone steps in the hall to the foot of the steps in the abbey choir amounting in all 1,220 yards. The ancient and most picturesque custom of strewing flowers before the royal procession, being revived on this occasion, was performed by Mrs. Mary Dowell, hereditary herb woman to the king, assisted by six young ladies, all wearing hoods, as represented in the plate illustrative of the flower strewing in Sandford's book of the Coronation of James II and Mary Beatrice the herb strewers appear there in the full dress costume of the period deep-pointed bodices with open robes looped back to show rich petticoats they wear long gloves and very deep ruffles falling from the elbows nearly to the wrists baskets containing two bushels of flowers and sweet herbs each were carried no light burden for the fair strewers two women to every basket and nine baskets full were strewn as it was april we may presume that violets primroses cowslips pansies bluebells and jonquils with stores of sweetbriar sprigs and other herbs of grace formed the staple commodity over which the gold broidered slippers of the beautiful italian queen and her noble attendants trod daintily on that proud day as they proceeded from the hall to the western entrance of the abbey the drums beating a march the trumpets sounding levées and the choir singing all the way to the church the well-known anthem commencing o lord grant the king a long life etc. both james and his consort were greeted with reiterated acclamations from the crowded spectators who forgot at least for one day all differences of creeds in the delight occasioned by the royal pageant The people were, indeed, prepared to look upon the queen with pleasure, for she had hallowed the day of her consecration with a deed of tender and munificent charity, by releasing all the prisoners who were in jail for small debts, taking the payment upon herself of all sums not exceeding five pounds. Eighty prisoners were discharged from Newgate alone, through the gracious compassion of Mary Beatrice, which was extended to all the small debtors in confinement throughout the realm hundreds and thousands therefore had reason to remember that anniversary and to bless her name when of all the glories of royalty that surrounded her that day nothing remained to her but the empty name of queen and the sweet recollection that she had caused many to rejoice in her joy by doing good when she had it in her power when the queen reached the entrance of the choir she left her canopy and its supporters and preceded by her vice-chamberlain and regalia bearers And followed by her ladies in attendance, ascended the steps of the raised platform, or theater, between her two bishops, and so, going to the chair of state prepared for her, on the east side of the sacrarium, she stood beside it to await the king's coming. It has been said that this royal ceremonial derived its greatest luster from the presence of so beautiful a queen, whose graceful figure and majestic carriage were so well fitted to adorn the external pomp with which royalty is surrounded on such an occasion sandford's prints of this coronation represent mary beatrice with her hair dressed very low a style that well became her classic outline and with a profusion of long ringlets falling on either side of her face and floating on her bosom another contemporary quaintly observes the jewels she had on were reckoned worth a million which made her shine like an angel while she stood by her chair of state Westminster scholars greeted her with shouts, of vivat regina maria, a compliment never paid before to any but a sovereign. This salutation or short prayer, as it is termed, they continue to reiterate till the arrival of the king, to whom they knelt saluting him in like manner by shouting vivat rex, as he ascended the steps of the choir to the theater. Their majesties having knelt at their false stools, remained in private devotion for a few moments, arose, and seated themselves in their chairs of state, the queen's officers and the noble bearers of her regalia, her train bearer, and the ladies her assistants, the two supporting bishops standing on either side of her majesty, her lord chamberlain also on her right hand, and vice chamberlain on her left, and her ladies behind her chair. At the recognition, the people signified their willingness and joy, with loud acclamations of god save king james after the offering of the pall of cloth of gold had been made by the king the queen was brought up from her seat to the altar to perform the like ceremony her regalia being borne before her mary beatrice joined in the service of the church of england not only without hesitation but with edifying piety indeed the devout behavior of the queen and the earnestness with which she made her responses were generally noticed the bishop of london had presented her with a small book of the prayers which were appointed to be used on that occasion and she read from it with the greatest reverence and attention during the whole of the ceremony mary beatrice probably felt in that moment that the differences between christian churches were not great enough to prevent those who agreed in the truths of scripture from uniting together in an act of prayer the sermon was preached by turner bishop of ely at half past one while the hymn veni Creator was singing in preparation for the consecration the queen knelt by the king's side near the altar the entire service of anointing crowning investing and enthroning the king and the homage from bishops and peers were performed before the consecration of the queen took place she having remained seated in her chair of state on the south side of the area a spectress of the inauguration of her royal lord till the last verse of the anthem his seat also will i make to endure for ever and his throne as the days of heaven had been sung followed by flourish of trumpets beat of drum and shouts of god save the king from those who were so soon to transfer their oaths of allegiance and shouts of gratulation to another king james had bestowed much care on his consort's regalia but none on his own the crown had been made for charles the second whose phrenological organization was broadly and powerfully developed. Consequently, it was too wide in the circlet and not lofty enough in the arch to fit James the Second. for the heads of the royal brothers were as unlike as their characters. When Sancroft placed this diadem on James's head, it tottered. Henry Sidney put forth his hand and kept it from falling, saying as he did so, This is not the first time, your majesty, that my family have supported the crown. A brilliant bon mot, if it had been based on facts, but a vain boast from a member of a republican family, and who, at the very time, he was complimenting himself for this small crown service, was engaged in a treasonable correspondence with the Prince of Orange, for the purpose of undermining the throne of his unsuspecting sovereign. It is well known that this trifling incident, which a little foresight on the part of James might have prevented, was regarded by the superstition of many present as an evil omen. Few are aware that the circumstance was noted with dismay by the anxious queen, who was, of course, the most deeply interested person there. She mentioned it herself many years after the revolution in these words. There was a presage that struck us and everyone who observed it. They could not make the crown keep firm on the king's head. It appeared always on the point of falling, and it required some care to hold it steady. End of section 11